right, you guys, we are in Matthew chapter 1, kind of looking at some of the, uh, the Christmas story. And um, I've got to be honest with you, I've been, I've been preaching for a long time, and as a pastor, sometimes when Advent comes around, you kind of have a little bit of like, oh, really? I have to come up with Christmas sermons again? What can I possibly teach that I've not already taught or that's not been said? And we have to rid ourselves of that pressure to be novel or that pressure to be clever, you know, when it comes to the Word of God. And we just have to say the Word of God always has fresh things to say to us. The Spirit always has uh, things to reveal to us, um, even if it's sort of, you know, surrounded by the, the cultural holiday and all the stuff that's imposed on that. It can be really difficult to look at the birth of Jesus without that clouding our lenses, you know, to, to see this really as it was in its context without the, the tinsel and all the decorations and the, the songs kind of, kind of clouding that. So that's what I've been trying to do personally as I read through this is to read it again for the first time. And one of the things I notice is, um, is really just how, um, how human the stories are, how difficult the stories are. Nothing really comes easy for the characters here. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of things that are not going their way. And there's a lot of fear, um, as you know, because that's what we're sort of teaching on almost topically the last week and this week and the next two is, is looking at these fears that accompany um, the advent of Jesus into the world. So I want to share one. And next week, Meg's going to sort of share um, a third one of these. And then we'll wrap it up on the 30th after Christmas. So in Matthew chapter 1, only two of the Gospels tell the birth story, Matthew and Luke. Um, Matthew is distinctively interested in communicating to a Jewish audience. Luke is interested in communicating to a Gentile audience. Matthew very much wants to, um, to, to sort of support this claim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He wants to establish Jesus' legitimacy. So he begins with something that often you and I would think of as pretty boring, a bunch of names, a bunch of genealogies. Um, Meg received for her birthday this year, she received uh, one of those DNA kits, you know, from Ancestry.com. Anybody ever done one of those? She actually got two of them, one for both of us, and it's kind of disgusting. You have to spit in this tube and, like, seal it up and mail it off, and I guess they run that through tests, and they come back and say what part of the world you're from and um, like who you're related. And you can check on the little form, do you want to, I don't know how they phrase it, but basically do you want to sort of be matched with other people that you might be related to? Um, and I thought well, that'd be pretty interesting to know. Maybe I'm kin with some of you guys, you know? Um, so I checked that off. We're, oh, yeah, that's right. We, 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 are not, we are not cousins, Megan, no. Um, <laughs> that's it so Matthew Matthew is concerned about genealogy too so he begins with this he doesn't begin with this interesting narrative he begins with a bunch of names and he begins all the way back with, with, with Abraham who was of course the father of the Jewish people and he traces his way all the way down one generation at a time to this person he's about to tell us about and we're not going to spend a lot of time but there's some powerful teaching just in this genealogy alone, right? Um, but Matthew wants to make it clear, he, this, this, this person, Jesus, he didn't just materialize out of thin air. 
you know, he didn't sort of just come without any context. He has a context. He was the fulfillment of a promise going all the way back to, to Abraham. Um, so then, though, he gets into the story of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to kind of read a little bit and talk a little bit about it, and, and we'll see what happens from here. So let's, let's read together. If you have your Bibles, we're going to jump to verse 18. It is on the screen behind if my big head's not blocking the way for those of you. Maybe you have an app. You can look at it there. But it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, says Matthew. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing that we know is that we entered, we're introduced to two characters, Mary and Joseph. You know, and, and, and probably like, like you know, many others of their day, their marriage was likely an arranged marriage. It's still common in those kind of cultures around the world. We don't think of that right now. It's, it's all about romantic love and compatibility and, you know, dating and, you know, just finding the love of your life. And, and um, in, in, this, in this culture, in this day and age, very likely this was an arranged marriage. And Mary would, of course, would have been a young girl. Joseph, some traditions say he would have been older and a widower, but other traditions say, really, no, he was probably a couple years older than her. But they're living in a small town in, 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 in Galilee, in, in Nazareth, and um, their families say, come together, and Joseph probably approaches Mary's dad, and um, they make an arrangement. And Mary's dad would have paid a dowry um, to Joseph, you know, gifts of money or, you know, we laugh, but it likely could have been livestock as well, you know. Um, they would have engaged, they would have been engaged for a period of around 12 months, and engagement in our day and time, it's, it's, it's not that binding, right? Um, especially on, especially in, in our Hollywood culture where, um, you know, engagements are broken off and put back together and broken off, and, put back, and it just doesn't mean anything. And, of course, in, in, the time of, in the time of Jesus, engagements were very binding. It was legally binding. You are almost all but married. Um, the only way to sort of to get out of this engagement was either to divorce your fiancé or one of you were to die. Death or divorce was really the only ways out. Um, and so there would have been a, sort of an exchange of vows for this betrothal and sort of this period of preparation um, of their betrothal. And then at the end of that, ordinarily would have been um, a wedding ceremony, celebrating with all the village and everybody all coming together. You know, so Mary and Joseph, at the start of the story, they were essentially married everything but consummating the marriage sexually. They were all as, as committed as they could be at this time. And it says this, but before they came together, before they were truly married, before that day at the end of the 12-month period, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And Meg's going to talk a little bit about this next week. But this, those words are just so, pardon the pun, but they're so pregnant with sort of shocking, devastating news that we don't want to move past that. She was found to be pregnant. And it doesn't say a lot about the exchange between Mary and Joseph, but I imagine that was seared in his memory forever. Imagine that conversation, you know, that sort of the days are going by and 
Um, at some point, Mary has not told him, but Mary probably knows, and he's kind of watching, and, and all of a sudden, you know, she begins to come up and have this conversation, and she drops this bombshell. Joseph, by the way, you need to know something. I'm pregnant. And you can imagine, those of you that have been in relationships, those of you that are married, those of you that have a significant other, you can imagine what this feels like. Of course, it feels like absolute betrayal. It feels devastating. It feels like your heart is just being ripped out. Just the shock of those words. Because in essence, what your loved one is saying is, I've been unfaithful to you. And she probably would begin to explain, but Joseph, Joseph hold on, Joseph, I, I haven't been unfaithful to you. I didn't do anything. So we don't, we don't really know the whole context. All he knows is she's pregnant and I'm not the daddy. And it's devastating news. And, he's, you, can, and you can just believe that he's having to sort of grasp with this, grasp, uh, struggle with this, with this decision. What do I do? And of course, fidelity in, in, in that culture was a big deal. It's not a, it's not, it's not a big deal now. It happens all the time. In their culture, it was everything. And it was, it was so powerful that by law, by both Jewish and Roman law, he was obligated to divorce her. It wasn't an option for him. It wasn't just something that he would do out of retaliation or you know, anger. or that, That's what you did. If your, faith, if your spouse was an adulteress, you divorced her. You're bound by law to do this. So he has this decision to make. And it says in verse 19, it says this. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That says a lot about his character. He's torn between these two things. He is a righteous man. He is a righteous Jew. He, he wants to keep the law and honor the law. He values the marriage bed so highly he values God's word so highly. He values fidelity so highly that he knows I have no choice but to, I, I can't condone this. I can't sanction this. I can't overlook this. This is a violation not just of, of our relationship. This is a violation of God's law. And he's, he's so righteous that he is compelled in his own character to divorce her. But it also says this, he's also, not, not only is he sort of being faithful law, but it says he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace, and that's, that's what would happen. And he, he had every right to do that. He had every right to publicly shame her, to issue her a certificate of divorce, a git, and, and, and shame her in front, of, in front of all of the people and all the society and all the village. As a consequence, you know, she would live with this sort of burden of shame upon her. She wouldn't have been executed, although technically that was the law um, but by sort of by that first century, that really wasn't that really wasn't sort of you know carried out. But certainly she would have lived a life of shame. Certainly she would have been excommunicated, scandal for the rest of her life. She would have lived this way. And Joseph knows this. Joseph knows that the price that that, that she is going to pay is great. That her life will never be the same. And his heart is broken. His heart is broken for her in spite of her infidelity. He's saying, I can't do this to her. We've got to do this quietly. I, 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 can't, I can't help it. I have, to, I have to show justice and righteousness to the law, but we can do this in a way where he wants to minimize. And that says so much about his character. It says so much about the one that God chose to be the father of Jesus. So he exercised justice, but he also, he is compelled by his own character to show mercy to her. 
He wants to lighten her burden. So the implication is that he goes to bed having decided to do this that night. He's heartbroken. He's torn up about it. But he goes to bed having resolved this is the best thing that he can do. Verse 20 says this, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he goes to bed that night, and he has a dream. And in this dream, the angel appears. Likely was Gabriel, because Gabriel is the one who is doing many of these sort of visitations. Gabriel is the one who sort of shows up to Zechariah, and Gabriel is the one who is going to show up to Mary. So not just any angel. This is sort of the, the, the highest, the, the, the voice from God, right? And he says, Joseph, look at what he calls him, Joseph, son of David. I, I didn't really pay attention to that until sort of just recently, son of David. As if to say, Joseph, you are part of this story too. You're part of this messianic plan as well. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And there's a real fear then that's sort of alluded to here. And it's this, what happens if I do what God asks? And this isn't a, this is a, you know, I, I don't have very many dreams. Like, I never have dreams like this. Maybe some of you have. This is one that he, where, where the angel shows up and all of a sudden he realizes that there is a real decision that I have to make. What happens if I do what God asks? And there's fear there. Because if he obeys, there, then there's a cost on him as well. His reputation now will be in jeopardy. Not only for Mary, but he's aligning himself with her. He is surrounding himself with her. His reputation will be sacrificed. His life plans will likely have to be changed. He'll live with this sort of this constant suspicion of sin, the, the rumors and the gossip and the, the hushed tones whenever, um, whenever they would come into, you know, a crowded room. And I wonder if even he sort of knew there's always going to be this suspicion, you know, that, did, did, I, did I make this up? Did I imagine this? Can I really believe this dream that I had, that my wife is faithful to me, despite all evidence to the contrary? Can I really wake up and go to her and say, let's continue down this path of marriage? And his fear, it's fear of, it's, it's fear of obedience. How do I say yes to this when it might cost me everything? How do I say yes to God when it's going to cost me everything I have? Verse 24 says, when, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So he wakes up and in the stream it's worked. You know, he's, he's woken up and he's convinced this is of God and he goes home and he takes her and they continue on their, their, their betrothal period. And at the end of that period, 
they're married. The Bible says they don't, they don't consummate their marriage. They don't have sexual relationships even until Jesus is born. And I want you to, and, and I, this is, I know, a little PG-13, but I want you to think about, think about the significance of that. Because if Joseph would have had every right, of course, to consummate his marriage on his wedding night, and honestly, that would have proven Mary's story. I don't, I don't want to go into graphic detail here, but he could have proven Mary's version of her virginity. Call in a midwife. Call in somebody else to do a physical inspection. He could have proven, they both could have proven that her story was right. He had the chance even to vindicate himself, even to vindicate his wife. But he said, no, this whole situation is God's. This whole situation is, is surrounded with the glory of the Holy Spirit. I can't touch it. I can't touch her. She is a vessel. She is a holy vessel for the Son of God to come into the world. I've got to keep my hands off. That's righteousness. Even though he has the right to divorce her, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Even, even though he has a right to, to, to divorce her publicly and clear his own name, he doesn't do that. Even though he has a right to prove, in the, okay, so Joseph, you're going you're to do the good thing and marry her, wonderful, but you've got, the, you've got a chance here at the end to prove your case. He doesn't even do that. His, his sense of God's, uh, uh, his, his consecration to God's obedience is so deep and so profound. I believe that's why God chose him. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You need to know that his obedience here, though, this is a pivotal decision that he has to make. It's going to set in place more of these opportunities along the way. This is not the only dream that Joseph is going to have. He's going to actually have four total. He's going to have three more after this one. Four more opportunities to hear. We're talking about hearing the voice of God. Four, more, four opportunities to hear the voice of God and to respond. And his ability to say yes now will determine his ability to hear and say yes later on. I, I don't want to move past this point too quickly because I think about my own life and I realize the power of saying yes to God in small things. It sharpens our minds and our hearts to say yes in the days to come. The more we say yes to God, the more we can say yes to God in the future, right? The more we say no to God, the more we, 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 we reject what he's saying, the more we tune out his voice, it's going to be harder in the days to come. But Joseph says yes now, and all of a sudden he's tuning his mind in, he's tuning his heart in, he's listening. And the next time comes, and all of a sudden when, when, when their, um, his family is here and Jesus is born, all of a sudden he's woken up by a dream saying, some men are out to kill you, get up, run to Egypt. And he's practiced saying yes. He's practiced hearing God's voice and responding in obedience. So he gets up and he goes. He hears God's voice. Then when the, when the Lord says, wake up, Herod is dead. It's time to go to Galilee. He hears it again and he's practicing. He's practicing saying yes. He's practicing obedience. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can overstate this. The more we practice obedience, the more of a habit it becomes in our own hearts and our own lives. Our present obedience makes future obedience easier. So how does Joseph obey? How does he do this? Like what, what, are, the, what are the little handholds, to use a mountain climbing metaphor, what are the little handholds that he uses? 
even though he knows it's going to cost him everything. What about the promise do you think he's latching on to? I think one of them is this, that God reassures him that this is spirit-driven. I think we can be fearless for the same reason. When we know that the Spirit is at work, it says this, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because why? Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph says, okay, if if this is of you, God, if this is of your Spirit, then I can have, I can have hands off. I can obey. We can be fearless knowing that the Spirit is at work. It says this, God reminds him. The second thing I, th- I see is that God reminds him of his role as an earthly father. And that might seem a minor thing to you, but I can't help but thinking there's a part of Joseph that says, why do you even need me? You're obviously doing all this on your own. Mary's going to have a baby on her own. We're not really going to, you know, I, I have no role in this. But look at what God, look at what the angel says. It says she will give birth to a son. That's her role. So she's going to be carrying this baby into the world. And you're going to, um, she will give birth to a son. Look at it, it says, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And I, I sort of thought about that earlier this week, and I began to think about the, the beauty of that opportunity. And so Meg and I, of course, we've got four kids, and with each one, we've had chances to name them, obviously. They weren't handed to us with names on them. You know, and God kind of gave, you know, Meg and I had heard the name Emma some years back, but then um, two of the other children, Josanna and Cohen both, I sort of exclusively heard that name for them before they were born. Josanna, I heard her name from the Lord within two hours of her being born. And we struggled for months and months and months about it. And I'd never heard the name Josanna in my life. I had to like get Google out. I was like, what is this? And there's no results on it. You know what it means? The Lord will, the Lord will provide. You know? And you know, the same with Cohen. Cohen means priest. It's sort of a Jewish surname, but it's his first name. And I, I sense that the Lord was saying that. You know? But just, I don't know. I mean, I don't... There's just, there was a beauty, there was a beauty and an awe and a privilege in my own heart about getting to say, I'm going to give you these names. I'm your dad. Your name is this. Your name is this. Your name is this. And I think sort of like it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost as saying, you know, God is saying, Joseph, you still are the father. You're still going to be his father. You're going to name him this. This is what the name is going to be, but you are the one who's going to place this name, place this identity upon. And I think when when Joseph thinks about that, Joseph realizes that he does have a role to play. He is still a a critical part of what God is doing in this whole process. So think about us. How do we be fearless too? Because we recognize the same thing. Whatever Whatever God is calling us to, whatever God is calling us to obey in, there's a role that you and I have to play that only you and I can fulfill. We're not just empty pawns in this. It's something that God is really wanting to, to do through us and in us. We can be fearless, recognizing that we too have a role to play. Third is this, is God, God promises that his act of obedience, that Joseph's act of obedience is going to have worldwide impact. So she will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
And I, I can't help but think that in that dream, Joseph realizes that if I say no to what God is calling me to do, I may be missing out on God bringing redemption through the world, to the world. I have in front of me an opportunity for global impact through my small act of obedience, even though it might cost me everything, even though it might cost me my reputation. Look at what God can do through this. It's not just a son. This is a son who's going to save people from their sins. We can be fearless believing that our small decisions have global impact. I just want to close with reading a, a quick letter to you from a, a young woman named Karen Watson. This was written 12 or 14 days, 12 or 14 years ago. It says this, she, Karen was, was going to be going on a missions trip to the Middle East to Iraq. So this was in 04, sort of during the height of the Iraq conflict and the Iraq war. She and several others from um, a particular church in Texas were going to be going on a missions trip. And she writes this letter, um, 2003 rather, she writes this letter um, to her pastors of her church. And the letters say this, it says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to Him. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward, she says. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply, just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-changing, life-saving, for every eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. And she writes this. She says, the missionary heart. She's got four bullet points at the end of her letter. She says, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. And she, she ends her letter with this. She says, I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too and my church family. In His care, Salam Karen. And she and three others were killed a week later in Iraq in 2003. And that letter was read at her service. I was not called to comfort or success, but obedience. I can tell you, there's plenty of things that I have fear about. 
I don't have fear about obeying, though. There's a lot of stuff I struggle with. But I know that the joy that comes from obedience surpasses anything else. The joy of following, the joy of saying yes surpasses anything else. The joy of, of knowing and loving and walking surpasses anything else. Let me pray for us. Brian's going to come up and we're going to sort of shift into some prayer ministry time. Let's just hear what the Lord wants to do during these last minutes here. Hmm. Father, we think about some of the times that You've asked us to do difficult things. Lord, and maybe, maybe we've been like Joseph and just we, we know the right thing to do even though it's hard to do or what we felt was the right thing. And Lord, sometimes you'll step in and you'll ask us to do what we thought we simply did not have the strength to do. So Lord, we just pray for, we, we pray for reassurance. Lord, if we're in one of those decision-making seasons, Lord, we pray for reassurance that your spirit is guiding this situation. Father, we just pray to hear your voice. My Lord, we want to be fearless. We want to be fearless in, in the day-to-day of saying yes to you. We want to be fearless in chasing after the things of your heart. fearless, Lord, in laying down our own reputations as you call us to, as you invite us to. So, Lord, you've not called us to, to be successful, and we know we're, we're in a culture where success means everything, or comfort and success mean everything. So Lord, just by acts of faith, we just lay that down. We can't chase after that anymore. We want to chase after you. We want to run after you. We want to run after your heart. Stand up together, friends. We're going to worship here.
after, let's say after a few minutes of worship, we can have some, a couple of us if we need to pray for healing or situations, whatever else. Marcy's here.